Let's open our Bibles to Jude and its single chapter, and let's consider that verse that we began with a few minutes ago. Jude, the epistle of Jude. We want to consider this morning a trite expression used by many in our city, and I want us all to be established in why it's wrong and where we base our assurance of eternal life. But we want to use these two verses as an introduction. Jude 1 and verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a warning of false teachers that would take the grace of God and turn it into a justification for living a lascivious or loose or carnal or worldly or sensual lifestyle. And so the warning here is that such teachers are crept in. In other places we're told that they would get worse and more would creep in. And the exhortation is for us to earnestly contend for the faith against them. And that's what we're doing this morning. We are trying to fulfill the Word of God by being reminded of what these false teachers teach and how we can stand against it. Father in heaven, we ask your mercy upon speaker and hearers that we would humble ourselves before thy precious Word, that we would believe it with all our hearts, and that we would oppose any compromise to it. Father in heaven, there is in our nation and at this time a widespread doctrine of so-called grace that results in the most lascivious kind of living without any regard for holiness or righteousness and yet promises eternal life. We are humbled that by your sovereign choice and the timing of your sovereign providence, we are living in the perilous times of the last days when men would no longer endure sound doctrine, but would turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. We thank Thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast seen fit to put us in this generation. And we pray that you will enable us and convict us and strengthen us that we would be the ones to fulfill this text and earnestly contend against these false teachers and their false doctrine. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
It is common in the churches of our city for this little four-word expression. Once saved, always saved. Now, Brother Mark, who's very protected from the churches in our city and from what they've taught, because he was raised a Roman Catholic, had never heard the phrase before. But if you've been around Arminian Baptist churches, you've heard it many, many times. See, Catholics can't teach once saved, always saved, because they don't believe it. You can get saved when you're baptized as an infant, and they do believe that that infant sprinkling saves you. It is the means of your regeneration, and it does make you a child of God. And if you were to die the moment after it, you would go straight to heaven. However, they have the other sacraments because you can lose your salvation for the rest of your life. And they've even invented a sacrament to take care of you at the last moment. It reminds me of the Roman Caesar, Constantine, who when he heard about Christianity, and this was his concept of it, he said, well, I don't want to be baptized yet. I have a lot of living to do. And he meant, I got a lot of sinning to do. So he said, when I'm about to die, I'm going to get baptized. I'll receive Christian baptism at the moment of death. And that's when Constantine, whom they call the first Christian emperor, was baptized when he was on his deathbed. And so Catholics, if you're on your deathbed and you fear that maybe a sin has slipped by that you have not confessed to your priest, someone didn't buy a candle for it, you didn't go to Mass often enough, they have extreme unction, otherwise known as last rites in which you can call the priest into your hospital room and he can bless you and you can go out of this world. Now see, they can't say once saved, always saved. And neither can a lot of, of other denominations like Methodists and like the Church of Christ and like others who believe that you can lose your salvation on a regular basis. Now they teach you how to get it back, but you can lose it again. And you can get it back and you can lose it again. We don't believe anything like that. We believe that our salvation rests entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross of Calvary. And it's not undone by anyone. It's done forever. And it has been done forever for 2,000 years. And if we were to speak in the full breadth of God's Word, we would say it has been done since eternity. Because in the mind and purpose and will of God and His eternal counsel, it was done. Known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. Once saved, always saved. What do they mean by once saved? Let's deal with this little statement. There's two lies in the statement. Not just one. There's two. We want to learn both of them. What do they mean by once saved? By once saved, and I'm referring to the 400 to 500 Baptist churches in our city, our county. Once saved means that if you have chosen eternal life, like people choose a dessert in a restaurant, then you're saved. Once saved. They are not looking back at the cross of Calvary. 
They are not looking back at God's electing purpose before the world began. They're not looking back at the Holy Spirit's regenerating power. They're looking back at an event in your life in which you did something to accept Jesus, invite Jesus into your heart, or decide to be saved. In order to be saved in their system of religion, all you need to do is say this. After someone else usually, because there's not enough wisdom and understanding in your heart to say it yourself, so they say the words for you so that you can quote the little mantra. A mantra is a little mystical phrase of Hinduism. And I know exactly how and why I'm using the words. Here's the little mantra they want you to quote. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Amen. When that happens, when that mantra is quoted, God shakes in His throne with joy and bends over and writes a new name in the book of life. That's what they believe. That person can go out and live any way they want to. They are told for the rest of their lives, whenever they question their salvation, Jesus isn't preached. The Holy Spirit isn't taught. God's doctrine of election is not brought up again. They are reminded, I was there with you. I was there with you when we knelt at the altar. Sounds even more Catholic, doesn't it? I was there when we knelt at the altar and you invited Jesus into your heart. That is the event they look at. That is what they mean by once saved. I have great discretion because you do not know what that provokes in my heart. That is blasphemy to think that the God of heaven is served in such a trite, foolish way to repeat the little words of a mantra. You don't have to give somebody words when they're convicted by the God of heaven like that. And they try to get you when you're as young as possible and impressionable so that you don't have an opinion of your own, but you'll just repeat the words and get saved. Then for the rest of your life when you're asked... Are you saved? You think of that event. Then they ask, when were you saved? You think of that event. You'll write it down in your Bible. You'll tell your family. You'll tell your church. And that is the moment and that's the event that you look at for the rest of your life. There is not one sentence in the Word of God that ever refers anyone to look back at such a trite and foolish event in their life. Not one verse. Find it for me. I don't read the Apostle Paul in the last chapter that he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I don't read this. I am now ready to be offered. But because I can remember kneeling at the bed of Ananias and inviting Jesus into my heart, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness and for all of them that love His appearing. That's a corruption of 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Do you know what he did say? I have finished my course. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. 
Notice what he is appealing to. A life lived in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they mean by once saved. Most of them have never read the Bible except for a few choice verses that they highlight that they think are extra special. But let's look at a couple of verses that they don't like. John chapter 1 and verse 13. John chapter 1 and verse 13. This is the heresy called decisional regeneration. All Baptists, well, today you can't say that anymore, but most Baptists despise baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is the doctrine of the Catholics in that when water is applied to a baby, they are regenerated. Catholics do believe in original sin, meaning that every child that is conceived and born is guilty for Adam's transgression. But a child can be saved from that transgression by the application of some water in what they call their first sacrament of holy baptism. That's baptismal regeneration. The Methodists have copied them. The Lutherans have copied them. The Presbyterians have copied them. Oh, they don't like to be told that, though, because Presbyterians play around with language. That's why their preachers spend so much time in seminary, is to figure out what kind of wording to use so that people won't suspect us as Catholics. But when you read the Westminster Confession of Faith and all of its paragraphs about baptism, you can't tell a whole lot of difference. Because baptism to a Presbyterian guarantees that that child is part of the covenant of salvation and will be born again in time, though not at that moment. The Episcopalians, the Anglicans, the Church of England, follow right along with Rome in this matter of baptismal regeneration. So does the Mormon Church. That's why you can get baptized for your dead relatives and save them. And so does a, a denomination called the Church of Christ that I usually call Campbellites when I'm writing anything because they're followers of Alexander Campbell. They all believe that you are saved and regenerated when you're baptized. But now that's baptismal regeneration. Our ancestors in the faith have been burned at the stake opposing that heresy right. for 2,000 years. But what we have to fight in our city is not baptismal regeneration so much, but decisional regeneration. That if that little child will quote the mantra, will say the little words I just said, Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven when I die. Will you come into my heart and save me? Now, no one in the Bible ever did that. No one in the Bible is exhorted to do that. And no one ever looked back at that event as saving anyone. And that's what they believe regenerates someone. When a child says that, bam! The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates them. Because the Holy Spirit is so thrilled that in the fleshly sin nature of their depraved heart, they quoted words that were given to them by some evangelist soul winner that is waiting for the crowd that he's going to have in heaven. I read nothing like that in the Word of God. I read that the Holy Spirit operates when and where and how He pleases like the wind blows. And He certainly doesn't blow on such trite little profane efforts 
at populating heaven and filling the book of life. But that's what they mean by the words, once saved. If you have that event in your life, then you are taken care of, which we'll get to in a moment. But we're still with the words, once saved. The first error is, they don't even know how to get saved, let alone how to stay saved. Are you with me? There's two errors. They don't even know how to get saved, let alone stay saved. But that's what they mean by getting saved. And that's what once saved means. You only have to do that once. And for you melancholies that had to do it over and over and over again because you never had assurance from the first time, I'm sorry for you. Because I had to do it too. Every time I'd get scared, I'd just invite Jesus into my heart again. He has calluses from coming through my doorway. Every time I read Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, where it said, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire, I'd invite him in again. Because there's no assurance of salvation in that plan. If you've ever read the Bible and thought about the God of heaven and wondered why there's no expressions in there about such an event. So I'd keep doing it. And then the more you find out about how great and terrible the dreadful God of the Bible is, you do it a little more frequently. You've heard me say this before, and I may have said it as recently as last week. I said, how in the world could such a little recitation of words cause the God of heaven to bend over in His throne and write my name in the book of life? Impossible. Impossible. And then we find out that it it isn't found in the Bible. Here's what we find in the Bible. John chapter 1 and verse 13, which were born... Here's how you're born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That destroys decisional regeneration. So they are wrong with once saved because their one event of salvation is their will. Is their will. But the verse says that we're born again, not of blood. It's not of your race, it's not of your nation, it's not of your culture. In this particular case, it's condemning the Jews who thought because of their relationship to Abraham, they were the children of God. And so the Holy Spirit is crushing the Jews and their confidence in Abraham and their Jewish ancestry. It's not of blood, nor is it, in verse 13, the will of the flesh. Now listen, when you're born the first time, all you have is flesh. When you're born the second time, then you have spirit as well. That's what John 3, 6 tells us. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so the only will you've got before you're saved is the will of the flesh. And so it says here, you are not born again by the will of the flesh. There is no decision or choice that can be made to help you get born again while you're in the flesh because it says it's not the will of the flesh. For those of you that like John Bunyan, that wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, I would just like to tell you this little tidbit about his life. Now, he had a few problems, but I want to tell you this positive tidbit. His deathbed sermon, shortly before he died, was on John 1.13. Not John 1.12, but John 1.13. Because when he faced the God of heaven, he was going there on the confidence of 113, not 112 without 13. 112, though it precedes 13, follows it 
in its verb tenses. Because the which were born is telling you why anyone ever received the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called decisional regeneration. We deny it. John chapter 3, they don't even know how to get saved, let alone how to stay saved. John chapter 3, I'm thankful to tell, I'm going to tell you the truth this morning, and in it you can have great confidence and assurance of your salvation. John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. You don't have any more control over being born again than you have control over the wind. And if you have control over the wind, I've got sailors in here that would appreciate you accompanying them to some of our local lakes. But you don't have any control. I think some in Texas right now would appreciate you saying, slow down. I read somewhere in the last 24 hours that there are some 100 mile an hour winds in Texas. But see, I know that none of you are going to leave this assembly to make a call on your cell phone outside to slow the wind down because it's out of your control. And so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows where it listeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Listeth means where it willeth. Wherever it wants to go, that's where it goes and blows. The wind does that and the Holy Spirit regenerates in the same way. Once saved in their minds refers to that event in their life when they made a choice to be saved as if they chose apple pie off a dessert menu in a restaurant and that is not how we're saved. No one in the Bible ever looked back at any decision like that. There is no emphasis on anything like that. If you ever make a decision, I am going to live the rest of my life for the Lord Jesus Christ, regeneration occurred before that decision, not after it, and especially not because of it. What does always saved mean? Well, always saved means if you have that event in your past, then it doesn't matter how you live or what you do, you're always going to be saved. You will never lose your salvation. You can't go to hell. Eternal life is guaranteed to you because of that past event. Once saved, always saved. This is exactly what they mean by it. They do not mean once saved in eternity by what God did, God the Father. They don't mean once saved by what Jesus did at the cross. They don't mean once saved by being born again by the operation of the Holy Spirit. They mean once saved by something you did to choose Jesus. And if you've got that event, then you're always going to be saved because God will never take it away from you. Once you got your name written in the book of life by your decision, it won't be erased. It'll stay there forever. You cannot go to hell. It doesn't matter how wicked you live. It doesn't matter if you backslide one minute later and never recover. Heaven is guaranteed. Now that is one lascivious doctrine. When you can get saved that easily and that foolishly and never live a righteous life and people can promise you eternal life, that is a lascivious doctrine. That's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and we deny it. 
They, be, they use the words always saved, meaning a guarantee of eternal life. This is unscriptural and it's inconsistent. They don't care what you do. You're saved forever. The Bible doesn't guarantee salvation to people who do not live a righteous life. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Of course, we're only looking at one or two or three, just a few verses of the many that we could. And the many that are in the outline that will be on the internet within 24 or 48 hours. Always saved means that they can pin their salvation forever on the fact that back there they made a little decision for Jesus. When their corpse is cold, and it's in a box right here, and the pastor wants to comfort the family, he doesn't preach God's electing purpose. He doesn't preach the work of Jesus Christ. He doesn't preach the work of the Holy Spirit. He tells a story about Joe 47 years ago, three months and two days, knelt with me, when he was scared after that auto accident and invited Jesus into his heart. That is a funeral sermon by an Arminian. I know that Joe is in heaven because 47 years ago he knelt with me and invited Jesus into his heart. Show me anything like that. There's nothing like that in the Bible. I promise you, if I'm your pastor, when you're here, promise me the same, if I'm there, that what comes out of any pulpit or set over my corpse is it before the foundation of the world that God of heaven elected this man, the Lord Jesus Christ came and died for him, and he was born again during his life, and we all know it because of the works that followed him. Amen. Amen. And we will be shouting happy. And so will you. You'll be happier than we are, but we're going to try to match. We're going to be singing how happy it is to die. Matthew chapter 7, look what it says to these poor people that are looking back on their little decision. Matthew 7.21 Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The assurance of salvation and the confidence of salvation and those that get into heaven by this verse have the evidence of doing the will of their Father which is in heaven. Not calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling upon the name of the Lord isn't going to get it done because many will have done it. Many will have preached in His name and it won't have saved them one bit. This is the warning of Scripture to those that think such things. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Here's a passage describing some that believed. Many of these were making decisions right and left. John chapter 8 verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. 
They were turning left and right and inviting Jesus into their hearts. In John chapter 8 and verse 30. How far did it get them? It got them this far. Jesus knew what they were saying to each other as they followed the Romans road. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They didn't know the truth yet, did they? He was telling them that if they would continue in His word, then they would know the truth, and the truth would set them free. But these people weren't going to continue in His word, because over the next 15 verses, He pokes them just a little bit. He pokes them just a little bit and says, your relationship to Abraham isn't going to get you anywhere. They wanted to kill him. And so he then told them the true state of their souls in verse 44, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. This group. It is those that continue that are the true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that are doing the will of their Father which is in heaven and prove eternal life. We are answering the question, what does always saved mean? Always saved means if you have that little event in your past where you made a decision for Jesus, then eternal life is guaranteed to you forever. And we're undoing that with the Bible. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's the evidence of being saved. It's not looking back at an event. I'm not going to pull out a baptismal certificate for anyone that we commit their bodies to the ground. I'm not going to pull out some little decisional certificate. We're going to pull out your life. If you give us a righteous life and give the Lord a righteous life, it will be remembered as the evidence of your salvation. If you don't, then it'll be a short service. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You understand, because I've taught you this verse, if you have a good memory, it's been a while. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a practical relationship to Jesus Christ, but their little decision is a practical relationship with Jesus Christ. And it says if you're in Jesus Christ practically, then you're going to have a changed life. All things are going to be new. If you're in Jesus Christ practically, and they claim that practical relationship by their decision. These are just a few of the verses that tell us there's a whole lot more than making a decision. But let's go on from those two questions. We've answered two questions. What does it mean, once saved? Their little event of inviting Jesus into your heart. What does it mean, always saved? That that little event guarantees your safety forever, no matter how you live. That's what they mean by once saved, always saved. Well, where did it come from? It didn't come from the Bible, did it? Go home and do a computer search of your Bible. Once saved, always saved. You won't find it. Where did it come from? Well, it didn't come from the Bible. There's nothing like it in the Bible. Two situations caused it to happen. First of all, since a little tiny trite decision to follow Jesus 
is not very impressive and certainly doesn't lend a great deal of confidence for eternal life, they had to tack on and always saved in order to comfort people that, yes, indeed, that little thing you did when you were a three-year-old is sufficient to get you into heaven. So they came up with a little saying, once saved, always saved. When a church member comes to an Arminian pastor and says, I'm doubting my salvation. Can you help me with assurance of my salvation? He will take the person back to the event in their life. Do you remember that event? Do you remember inviting Jesus into your heart? Then, brother, you're saved. And if he still doubts it, well, let's, let's just kneel down and do it again. Let's just kneel down and make it right this time. And you know, some that read the Word of God and question the depravity of their own hearts, they're making it right often. That's how they do it. I'm never going to turn you to something like that. I'm going to turn you to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the depravity of man, and how you have distinguished yourself from depraved men by following in the path of righteousness, which only a righteous man can do. Because that's what the Bible tells me to do. When I go to 1 John, and there's five chapters there that teach how you can know that you have eternal life, what are the, there's faith, there's love, and there's righteousness. Isn't that right? When you read first, is there anything else in 1 John? I don't, I don't know about anything else. When it says, these things that are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, faith, and he, and he teaches very plainly that faith follows being born again. Then he teaches loving the brethren. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And we know that everyone that doeth righteousness is righteous. And we know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of God. Amen. Those are the three things. That's how you can know that you're saved. Do you do righteousness? say, well, I don't do it perfectly. No one's ever done it perfectly, and you don't need to do it perfectly to have perfect assurance. When you fail, do you confess your sin? He forgives you, and He's faithful and just to forgive you, and you go on. Do you love the brethren? Do you serve the brethren? Do you get off your high horse? Do you get out of your comfort zone? Do you go after people to love them? It'll be remembered in heaven, and we'll remember it at your funeral, because that's the proof that you have eternal life. If you don't forgive others, if you are harsh, critical, negative, a hater in your heart, full of anger and malice toward others, don't look at me. You're the one condemning yourself. That's why I preach so hard against those things. Because the evidence of eternal life is love. And it is a greater evidence than faith. Now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. The reason... Oh, I can't preach that sermon. It took me four sermons. It was called, Love is the Greatest. Love is greater than faith as an evidence of eternal life because the devils believe. We had that read to us. The devils believe. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God isn't nearly enough, but devils don't love. Devils are full of malice and wickedness and hate, and they're out to destroy. So when you show love, you show that you have a changed life. First of all, this little saying came from the fact that it needed to comfort people who were doubting their salvation because they just didn't believe they got their names written in the book of life for doing something while they were still in a diaper. 
They come back to the pastor, and so the pastor has to come up with something. And so they all grow up. They can quote this thing in their sleep. Once saved, always saved. They can't. Once saved, always saved. I did it. Once saved, always saved. Look at your lifestyle. You know, Grandma says to Johnny, how, how, how can you think you're saved the way that you're living? Once saved, always saved. Remember, Grandma? I went forward in Bible school. Remember? They were offering those great big 12-ounce candy bars if I would go forward. Remember? I went forward and invited Jesus into my heart. And she says, she doesn't know what to say. Johnny's just taken her doctrine and stuffed it down her throat. Once saved, always saved. Wait till they meet the Lord Jesus Christ and they tell him, once saved, always saved. And he says, I never knew you. You weren't once saved and you're not always saved. I never knew you. Do you know how you can know that Jesus knows you? Because you know Him and you love Him and you want to obey Him. It's that simple. Do you love Him? Do you know Him? Do you want to obey Him this morning? Do you want to obey Him when your dad says you can't drive home? Then He knows you. The simplicity of the Gospel. We have more to say though. There's another reason where it came from. When the Church of Christ came into town, here's how the Church of Christ got started. They got started down here in this quadrant of the United States, the southeastern part of the United States. Alexander Campbell taught his preachers one debate's worth a thousand sermons. They would come into every town and post a notice on trees and in the newspaper and challenge the Baptist pastor to take them on in a public debate because that pastor was spending all of his time out plowing his field instead of studying the Word of God the Church of Christ preacher could take him to town and shame him in front of the people. It was terrible. It happened all across this country. I mean, all across this quadrant of the country, the southeastern United States. And so the Church of Christ got started. It's only 170 years old from its very beginning. He was taught by Baptists, and he taught that salvation was necessary in order to be saved. Now, they practice immersion like Baptists do because they look like Baptists. And a lot of people are deceived thinking that they're, well, they're just like Baptists except they're trying to be more scriptural by calling themselves the Church of Christ. Since there's no Baptist church in the Bible, and they're very good at reminding you of that. And so that's where the Church of Christ came from. And so what did Baptists have to teach their children and teach in Sunday school in order to counteract the Campbellites? Once saved, always saved. Because the Campbellite believes that though you're baptized by immersion, you're born again at that moment when you are baptized, you can lose your salvation and you have to confess your sins in order to get your salvation back. Back and forth, back and forth throughout the life of a Church of Christ church member. And so the Baptists came up with their little trite, this is not how you defend truth. You don't invite some little, you don't invent some little soundbite to counteract error. Once saved, always saved. You learn the Word of God and take the doctrine of baptismal regeneration of the Campbellites apart. Right. Baptism doesn't save. And what's the, what's the best verse you're going to go to to prove that you are not made a child of God by any will of the flesh? John 1.13, you can go there. I left off the last part of that verse that says you're not regenerated or born again by the will of man. That's someone else taking you to the waters of baptism like a Catholic which has to have parents and godparents to get them there. 
You can take him to Titus 3, 5 and say, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Is baptism a work of righteousness? Of course it is. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It's not by works. And then you go to my favorite verse about baptism, 1 Peter 3.21. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, and when they jump out of their pants and say, see, it says it saves us. Say, it just told you how. Figuratively. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It doesn't wash away sin, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience, which means there was a good conscience before the baptism even took place. That's how we've got to defend the truth, rather than once saved, always saved. It's a cute little jingle, but it's not really what Jude meant when he said, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Well, what's so bad about the saying? Well, it's got two lies in it. They're not getting saved the right way. They're not getting saved at all. And they're certainly not staying saved. What effect has this heresy had? It's promoted false confidence of eternal life, leading to lascivious living. Because once you can tell a person that when you were five, Johnny, I remember. I remember you invited Jesus into your heart after Joy Club. You're saved forever. You're saved forever. Once saved, always saved. What effect has it had? It leads to lascivious living because there is no reason to live righteously. It gets countless reprobates in churches because they think they're saved by doing something so simple. And it discourages the hearts of God's elect by promising life to sinners and not teaching God's elect the incredible love and the operations of grace that God did extend to save them. Today's easy believism is pathetic and it's profane. They'll offer bubblegum, burgers, fish fillet, hot dogs, roasts, lock-ins, rap concerts, anything to get people to make a decision for Jesus. They'll hire athletes, actors, actresses. They'll, they'll blow your brains out with contemporary Christian music until you're in the throb of that music. Just like pagans have done for 6,000 years, you would invite anyone into your heart with enough music. The apostles never used music. Never. Did they use music to manipulate people into making a decision? For those of you that have listened to Billy Graham Crusades or been in the most churches, just as I am is only sung one time, isn't it? I mean, in one part of the service, isn't it? Just as I am is never sung any other time but as an invitational hymn. They all copy each other like lemmings and sheep. You know, it's taken me 20 years to get weaned off of Just As I Am as an invitational hymn. It's a wonderful hymn. The man who wrote it never used it for that purpose. Right. And they've got somebody on the organ tweaking your heart and trying to cause you to bleed. And they'll sing it once and he'll make an appeal and they'll sing it twice, five times, ten times, Remember the record, Paul, at that youth rally we were at? 
The man got up and said, I'm only going to do this one time. If you don't get saved the first time we sing it, it's over for you. We did. We sang it eight times and then hummed it seven more. Fifteen times. Do you remember that? It was Flint, Michigan. Fifteen times. We were sitting there. Oh, yeah, we were good counters. Maybe that's why I got into accounting early on. Counting all the invitational efforts made to get young people saved. Every time. This is the last time. This is the last time. Where did that kind of lying come from? Where did that kind of manipulation come from and call the results salvation? Like heaven's rejoicing and they're writing names so fast in the book of life they can barely keep up. The quill pens are running out. While they all sing, there's a new name written down in glory. There's no new names written down in glory. I'm glad the God of heaven's known my name from before the foundation of the world. Before He created Adam, He knew me. And He knew you. And the Lord Jesus Christ saw me when He died on the cross of Calvary. Do you know how I know that? Because it says He shall see His seed. He saw me when He died on the cross of Calvary. And the Holy Spirit wasn't going to let me go through life the way I was going and the way I was headed. He changed me by His almighty power. That's salvation. Can a decision save a person? Not a chance. Who invented that idea? If you want to pick one man, it was Charles Finney, a Presbyterian lawyer who decided to become an evangelist and basically ruined the state of New York with his idea of evangelism. All you have to do is go on the Internet, punch in Charles G. Finney evangelism and read. There's going to be two kinds of documents. There's going to be the fawning little servile toadies that are still following him. And there's going to be a whole lot of men that tell you how he ruined the state of New York for anyone ever to be saved in that state. Because he's the first one that came up with a mourner's bench. He's the first one that got people to come forward to get saved and to sit in a mourner's bench. And so he convinced the state of New York that most of them were saved and no one had been born again by the Spirit of God. There are studies that have been done in our... Charles Finney invented it. Billy Graham, D.L. Moody, and others popularized it and promoted it. There have been studies done on Billy Graham crusades that only 2 to 5% of all those people that go forward can be found going to church a year or two later after a crusade. Going to church. Forget living a righteous life. Because that is not salvation. Salvation is when Jesus Christ is preached. Not when the starting quarterback from the previous Super Bowl gets up and gives his testimony. All little boys will follow that man. That's called the Pied Piper approach to evangelism. Paul never did that. Paul preached Jesus Christ crucified. And if you love that ugly message, then it showed God had changed your heart. They take Revelation 3.20, which is a verse for fellowship addressed to the church of the Laodiceans and make it a verse for eternal life addressed to the gang members of L.A. Now, brethren, that is a big corruption of the Bible. Revelation 3.20 isn't even their verse. It's ours. It doesn't have a thing to do with eternal life. Well, when and how are you saved? You know how you're saved, don't you? 
Before the foundation of the world, God elected you in Christ Jesus. We call that the eternal phase of salvation. In time, the Lord Jesus Christ was sent into this world, and He laid down His life to pay the legal price for your sins so that you could be forgiven for the sins you would commit. We call that the legal phase of salvation. During your lifetime, it could be while you're in your mother's womb like John the Baptist. It could be later. You are born again by the Spirit of God. We call that the vital phase of salvation. If God has elected you, Christ has died for you, and the Spirit has regenerated you, and not one of them ever does any one of those operations without all three being done, then you will be glorified. You read it from Romans chapter 8 this morning. You will be glorified. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. There's no lost there. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. There's none lost with that link of the chain. And whom He called, them He also justified. No loss there. And whom He justified, 90% of them He glorified. No, there's no loss there. The ones He foreknew and predestinated all end up glorified. That's how you're saved. You say, but what about my believing? Your believing's for your comfort, your assurance, your benefits, your pleasure, your confidence, your joy, your peace in this life. It doesn't change a thing in heaven. Your believing is the evidence of what God's done for you, and your believing gives you the peace of mind that God has saved me. Because that's the first thing. But God doesn't want you to stop with believing. Nowhere does the Bible say once you've believed, you've done all there is to do. It says add to your faith. Does it say that? Second Peter chapter 1, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, godliness. Godliness, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, charity. Eight things. You're to add to faith. Brethren, that's how you can know that you're saved. That's how we are saved. Can a child of God lose his salvation and end up in hell? Not a chance. Not a chance, brethren. Are there any elect in hell? No. Let's look at some verses. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. You know what? We do believe once saved, always saved. We believe once you're saved by the blood of Christ, you're always saved. We believe that once you were saved in the purpose of God, according to election, you're always saved. 2 Timothy 1.9 We believe that once the Holy Spirit regenerates you, you're not strong enough to unregenerate you. You're always saved. Once saved, always saved. But we look at the finished work of Christ. We look at the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. We look at the purpose of God, not at our little decision. John chapter 6 and verse 39, I came down, this is the Father's will which hath sent me, verse 39, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. He says it, because He looks at it as the whole body of Christ. He will raise every single one up at the last day. Not one will be lost. Every single one will will land in heaven safe and sound because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. When we're little children and we take our Father's hand, we know that when we're walking around the block or we're walking someplace, I can't get lost when I'm in my Father's hand. 
Now, I had Abigail's little hand this morning leading her from the parking lot to this building. Little tiny hand. You know, if she would have wanted to go anywhere, I had her. If somebody would have grabbed her, something was going to separate from someone's body before I lost her. Might have been Abigail's, but I wasn't going to let go of her hand. She was safe. I got something a whole lot better than that. Oh, listen to this. Listen to this. Verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. It doesn't say they make a decision for Me and then follow their lusts. It says they follow Me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. The Lord Jesus Christ. What can I say? about that conquering prince on a white horse when he reaches forth his right hand and takes one of us, one of his sheep, no one is going to pluck it out of his hand. You might be flying along behind him while he dashes to heaven on his white horse, but you're not coming out of his hand. Where's he going to haul you? I'm going to run this rabbit trail. He's going to take you to his pavilion. I hope that some of you hear me once in a while about one of my favorite scriptural images. And that's the pavilion in the center of the army of heaven with the pennants flying off the top. With the mightiest angels of God standing all around it. He dashes through the midst of that great host of heaven. And I'm flying along at the end of his hand. And he takes me inside into the secret compartment of his pavilion where he hides me. And we have fellowship together. The Lord Jesus Christ, ruler of heaven and earth. And little Jonathan Crosby, who sinned against him so much. But he rescued me from the clutches of the devil and my own foolishness and dragged me to heaven. Amen. The last little ways I wanted to run with him. For a while he had to drag me. But it didn't matter to him. Do you think my resistance of digging in my heels stopped his white steed? No way. Praise be to God. Amen. That was verse 28. Shall any man pluck them out of my hand? You say, well, I'm still doubting. Okay. The Holy Spirit knows you might be. You might not think Jesus Christ is strong enough to hold you in His hand. Verse 29. My Father which gave them me. That's the doctrine of election. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Amen. Amen. Look at the comfort that God wants to give you. Can you take that chariot ride? The hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hand of God is going to be with you all the way. If the angel fails, the chariot is still on his hand. Underneath are the everlasting arms, and I'm in my Father's hand, and I'm in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can a child of God lose his salvation? Not a chance. Not a chance. Are there any elect in hell? That's a contradiction of terms. Can Jesus lose any he died for? Not a chance. He promised he wouldn't, and God accepted his sacrifice and said that we were made accepted In the Beloved. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by the Lord Jesus Christ. Since Jesus Christ's death was so precious, God's going to freely give every other gift 
that goes along with it. Romans 8.32 How shall He that delivered His own Son up for us, shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Everything is taken care of. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus, and we were chosen to those spiritual blessings. How can you know that you're one of God's elect? Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. I know I've preached these verses too many times, but do you know that many still want to know that they're God's elect? Second Peter chapter 1. And I've quoted these verses already this morning. We are told in the first verse of Second Peter that we obtained like precious faith as a gift to us through the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're told what to do with that faith in verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. See, no one ever says that in the once saved, always saved group. Now you're saved. You can go home and know that if you're hit by a car out there in the street today, you're going to go straight to heaven. But the Bible has something more to say than just faith. It says, beside this, verse 5, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, this is your funeral sermon. If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather. I want you to notice that verses 8 and 9 allows the fact that there are barren and unfruitful children of God. It allows it. But does Peter end with that ninth verse? No. He says, wherefore the rather, instead of living like verse 9, go back to verse 8 and have a life that is filled with the abundant fruit of righteousness. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It can't be plainer. When anybody says to you, if you believe in election, how can you know you're saved? Listen to their question. They, in their minds, have convinced themselves that they can have assurance of salvation by looking within and on the flyleaf of their Bible at a little thing they did. Oh, that is so terrible. So many men have been deceived that way. But here's how you can tell people. Take them to 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. There are eight things listed. If those eight things are in your life and abounding, you have eternal life because only a child of God would ever do those eight things. And what should you do with your life? You should give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Do you want verse 8 to be your funeral text? Or do you want verse 9 with the great prospect that verse 9 may not cover you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We just have a couple minutes left, a few minutes left. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The question is asked, how can I know I'm elect? 
Can I have assurance of salvation? How do I get assurance of salvation? I'm showing you right now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that He is the Son of God. That by itself, done with sufficient sincerity, is evidence that you have eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That thou shalt be saved is not in the next second you're going to be born again, but in the last day when you stand before God, you will be allowed into heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But that believing assumes things that aren't in the context if the context doesn't tell you what to assume. Wherever faith is mentioned in the Bible, the context adds to it works. And if it's not in the context, it is to be understood by knowing the rest of the Bible. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. The election of a man can be known by his work of faith. When he believes on Jesus Christ, it results in him living a life pleasing to Jesus Christ. It's evidenced by his labor of love. Not only does he say he loves the brethren, he works to show that he loves the brethren. Not only does he have hope and say, I have hope that I'm going to heaven. He has patience of hope in that when trials come his way, he is not moved. He patiently endures them because he has real hope. When you see a person get angry at God for some evil circumstance in their life, I don't care what they said about their hope. They do not have the hope that's here described. This hope is patient through tribulation. This is working faith, working love, and working hope. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6 that our brother read to us this morning. Hebrews 6. Look at the verse. Is the Bible plain enough? It tells you that we're saved by election, Christ's justification, the Holy Spirit's regeneration, and then it tells us how to prove it to ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for such a simple Bible. That doesn't lead to lascivious living, does it, in Second Peter chapter 1? Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to do these eight things. Is that lascivious living? One of them is godliness. There's no lascivious living there. I still can't get over it, and I've told you this so many times, I know I'm boring you right now to tears by repeating this, but they accuse us in our doctrine of election that if election is true, then it doesn't matter what you do. Because if you're elect, you're going to heaven anyway. If you're not elect, you're going to hell anyway, no matter what you do. And they say your doctrine means that there is no motive to live a righteous life. Look what I'm showing you. Have you ever heard about the pot calling the kettle black? I invited Jesus into my heart when I was three years old in Joy Club when they offered me a big candy bar. And all the other little boys and girls were going forward. And once saved, always saved. Tell me how that leads to a righteous life. Right. How in the world can they even question our doctrine that it doesn't lead to a righteous life when all you have to do is look at around the churches today and see they live any way they want to inside the worship and outside the worship? That system of religion has no motivation at all to live a righteous life. 
I invited Jesus into my heart and once saved, always saved means I'm saved. It doesn't matter how I live. They're the ones guilty of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Hebrews 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Wait a minute. Are there things that are supposed to accompany salvation? If you're saved, are there things that are supposed to go along with it? I thought you just had to invite Jesus into your heart. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your decision for Him when you were under the influence of just as I am from a pipe organ. Oh, it does sound good. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Does the Bible match up pretty well with itself? Is that what we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3? That we remember without ceasing your labor of love? Your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward His name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Have you heard me explain more precisely in the last few months when I've said it's loving the brethren for Christ's sake? If you love the brethren for social sakes, not good enough. That is an evidence of eternal life. It, and do you know why the Lord puts such a bunch of oddballs together? He's really tr- he's wanting to give you the strongest proof possible. Right. And listen, if you can love this church, Amen. you've got the strongest proof possible that you have eternal life because we are a bunch of oddballs. Yes. We're from all over the place. We have more. Listen, we have more opinions than there are members. <laughs> yeah, it it's it's sad sometimes. Do you know why he did that? The Lord is giving you an, an opportunity to love those that are unlovely to your unlovely opinion. And by doing so in the name of Christ, it's proof of eternal life. Because look at it, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. It's because you love one another because they're Christ's children. Look at the next verse. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Are you trying to tell me that full assurance of eternal life and salvation is based on loving the saints in Christ's name? That's what it says. It doesn't say the full assurance of hope unto the end is because you invited Jesus into your heart. It doesn't say once saved, always saved. It says if you would be diligent, you can have full assurance. And here's how. Work and labor in loving one another. That's why I press it all the time, brethren. I'm trying to help you before we get to the day when you're on the deathbed and the hose is right here. I want us to get there with confidence before we're there. This is what the Bible teaches. We don't earn our way to heaven, but we can assure our hearts that we are going to heaven by loving the brethren. And it is no fine line. It's no fine line. That's why people come in and sit for a week One service, two services, a few months, and they go on out the door because they don't love the brethren. They don't love Jesus Christ and they don't love the brethren. If you stay and if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, is what Jesus taught. You're not saved by your works. And while you might be able to be saved without a whole lot of works, there's no evidence that you're saved without works. 
Can once saved, always saved be used correctly? Sure it can. Once saved in eternity, in the electing purpose of God. Once saved in the cross of Calvary, when Jesus Christ paid for my sins. Once saved, when the Holy Spirit regenerated my dead soul. If any one of those is true, all three are true. If all three are true, always saved. Yes, I believe in once saved, always saved. But it is certainly not the way that they mean it. Can you fall from grace? Only from the only from the proper doctrine of grace. Right. Only from the right understanding of grace. You can't fall from God's grace. If you could fall from God's grace, then Romans 8 must be taken out of your Bibles. And I think it just might be one of your favorite chapters. You're not going to pull it out anytime soon. Right. Because no one's going to fall from the grace of God. Does chastening mean when God pounds us? Does chastening mean that we're not saved and we're going to hell? That we've lost our salvation? We've sinned and God starts to pound us. Does that prove that we're going to hell? The opposite. It proves that He loves us and we're going to heaven. And He doesn't want us to come to heaven with all that baggage. He wants us to come to heaven in full repentance and righteousness. Do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 11.32? When it said that some were weak and some were sickly and some were already dead in the church at Corinth? It said, God chastens you now in this way so that He won't have to condemn you with the rest of the world. That's part of salvation because He loves us. And we should endure it as a loving Heavenly Father bringing us back into the way of righteousness. If you will walk in the Spirit of God, look at Romans chapter 8. This is my final verse and we're done. Romans chapter 8. I have to give you this. If you will walk in the Spirit... And not after the flesh. Walking in the Spirit means living a life of love, joy, peace, long-suffering. The Holy Spirit's not going to do that for you. But if you choose to live a life submitted to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God will give you the strength and bear that fruit in your life. The Bible says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That is an imperative verb construction. That means you allow God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Humble yourself before God. Beg Him for a measure of His Spirit. Luke 11.13 says you can pray for the Holy Spirit and God will give it to you. And then you walk according to what that Spirit has taught us. Walk in the Spirit. Do you know what you can... What does Romans 8.1 say? Without looking. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Do all of you children know how we get in Christ Jesus? We're elected in Christ Jesus before the world began. But then how does it describe those elect that are in Christ Jesus? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. All in one verse. That verse is so magnificent. That verse condemns once saved, always saved by itself. It says God saves us. By putting us in Christ Jesus where there is no more condemnation. And those that are in Christ Jesus can only lay claim to it by walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh in one verse. But here's the one I want. If you'll walk after the Spirit and mortify the deeds of the flesh, look what it tells you. Verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. If you submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for the Holy Spirit and live a life after the Spirit of God by bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that Spirit will witness in your life that you are an adopted Son of God. You will know that you have eternal life. You will know God is your Father. You will know you are a Son of God. And you will not have doubts about it. The doubts that you have come from a spirit of fear. God has given us the spirit of adoption, whereby we can know that adoption took place with our name on the court documents. But you can only have that if you're walking after the Spirit, because if you are playing with sin, or playing with the world, listening to the world's music, watching the world's television, that will dull, quench, and grieve the witness of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, and you will not have the assurance that you want to have. You can be full of that assurance. The closer you walk with God, the more holy your life, and the more you put to death in your life, the more you know that you're a child of God. You unleash the power of the Spirit of God in you because God wants you to know you're His Son every second of your life. That's the Word of God for this morning. Once saved, always saved. Yeah, we'll use it our way. The way they use it, double heresy. God save us from decisional regeneration and God save us from promising life to anyone that doesn't give all diligence to bear fruit in their life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.